Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. MPB seeks an experienced news reporter to produce NPR-style news stories and features on issues of local and regional interest. Candidates should be comfortable with social media and reporting on multiple platforms. A complete job description can be found at mpbonline.org. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, August 30th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the U.S. Supreme Court is asking attorneys for Mississippi's governor to file arguments defending the Confederate battle emblem on the state flag. A look at Tropical Storm Harvey's impact on Mississippi gas prices and find out how Mississippi cities like Gulfport are organizing for Hurricane Harvey relief donations. We have just really uh, an opportunity here to pay it forward, uh, to share and, and respond in kind where there is need. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. U.S. Supreme Court is asking the state of Mississippi to respond to a petition challenging Confederate imagery in the Mississippi state flag. Mississippi has the last state flag featuring the Confederate battle emblem. Attorney Mike Scott, who represents plaintiff Carlos Moore on the matter, says this development is fairly unusual. He speculates the court is interested in the petition. State residents continue to hold varying views on Confederate monuments, symbols, and the state flag. Some critics say the symbol is racist, while some supporters say it represents history. A group of history professors are weighing in on the debate. An open letter signed by some 30 historians at colleges and universities across the state opposes the violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the Mississippi flag. Kathy Sade Turnipseed is an assistant professor of history at Mississippi Valley State University. She tells us how the open letter inspired her. It was an open letter that was circulated by Dr. Robert Luckett from Jackson State University and Otis Pickett from Mississippi College. And of course, you know, those of us who are professors and historians, once we read it, it was proposed um, to us as something that we would agree with. And of course, I did agree with it. And I signed on along with, I think, nearly 40 other professors and historians. I prepared a statement, too, as a result of that. The letter was sent following the violence in Charlottesville, but is this a stance that you have carried all along? Absolutely. This, I recognize, is a protracted and seemingly never-ending battle to regain the lost cause of the Confederacy and to enhance the ideas of white supremacy by 
suppressing Native American and African American advancement since the inception of this country. And so considering the historical context of the Mississippi State flag, that emblem identifies with the Confederate States of America. It signifies that this is what is important to the citizenry here, but that's not true given that I, for one, certainly do not approve of its message um, because the Mississippi flag does not reflect the entirety of the state's history and, and hope and vision of the majority of its people. What have your students asked or what have you discussed in your classes following the events of Charlottesville? We just um, started back this semester and we did have uh, a hot topics time in our class, and and I allow this for our students to reflect on current events, you know, throughout the country that impacts them, and so it's an open forum for discussion, and so, yes, students did bring it up, and they really feel the unfairness, especially being at a historically black university. They just don't understand why this battle continues. Why is it that Mississippi is the last holdout on something that reflects a sign or a battle to put them back into slavery? That's what it represents to them. And it's a struggle trying to justify the fact that this is official. This is a government-endorsed or, you know, Mississippi-held ideal. How do you justify that? And our students Typically, they get it that this is something that they will have to continue to fight as well. Dr. Kathy Sade Turnipseed is an assistant professor of history at Mississippi Valley State University and is the Mississippi Diversity Educator of the Year. Dr. Turnipseed, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Stephanie Rolfe is associate professor of history at Millsaps College. She tells us historians do not want to erase history. With all of the conversations going on about history and about memory and about heritage, historians really have to be in the middle of that conversation. This is what we do for a living, and everything that we do is evidence-based, and it's important for us to be in these conversations so that we can counter some of the misinformation that's circulating, especially among white supremacist groups. I know school has just started again, but have you interacted with students yet about this topic and engaged their interest in this? I actually started my first class Monday morning at 8 a.m. with a discussion of Charlottesville, and they read an article the next class period about how historians interpret the events in Charlottesville and what our role is in helping move this country through the conversations that we need to have about race. And one of the things that I'm finding among students at Millsaps is that they're anxious to have these conversations. They're looking for answers. They come from a variety of perspectives on this. So I would not in any way try to represent that there is unity in my classroom about the events from a couple of weeks ago. But there is an attempt to understand what this means about where we are as a country. And to me, that is the most that I could hope for in a, in a history classroom, for them to actually go to the sources and work their way through to the answers. Do you believe this conversation will continue in your classrooms? I'm teaching a history of Mississippi class, and I'm teaching an early U.S. history class this semester. So in both of those cases, we have to continue to have these conversations every day that we meet. You know, in the early U.S. class in particular, 
our end point is the end of Reconstruction in 1877. So that's about the time that white Mississippians and white Southerners are actually making a deliberate attempt to reinvent the causes of the war and to remember it in a different way that's more honorable than defending the cause of slavery, which was their initial motivation for secession. So in some ways, my students will spend this entire fall semester walking through the different moments that lead up to the Civil War. And in that process, I hope they're able to see what the motivations were for the men who championed secession. They were pretty clear about that in each of their documents and all of their speeches. They supported two things, the continuing of slavery and the promotion and protection of white supremacy. And and my students will be reading those documents. Playing devil's advocate, though, there are a good number of Mississippians who will say that the Mississippi flag is not racist in any way, shape or form, that it is strictly a flag that shows heritage for the state, that taking down Confederate monuments or remnants of the Confederacy is disrespectful. It is hiding history. How do you respond to that? Well, as a historian and as someone who believes that the flag should come down and that we need to find an appropriate space for these monuments, I emphatically say that this in no way erases history. What it does do is it corrects our interpretation of history to something that is not only factually accurate about the cause of slavery, but also promises to move us forward as a state in our conversations about power, about access to power through voting, through um, running for public office, great public schools, all of these things that we value, I think, as Americans. And if we rely on memory and feelings about the Confederacy. That doesn't get us anywhere. Historians are much more interested in looking at the evidence and the sources from the people who actually participated in putting these monuments up, from the men who decided to raise that flag in 1894, 40 years after the war had ended. They decided to memorialize their secession from their country. I don't see that as being particularly patriotic. I don't see that as being particularly respectful to the people who died in the war. I see that as a way to memorialize the sort of cultural violence and physical violence that was being perpetuated in the 1890s through disfranchisement of black voters, through segregation in the establishment and legal approval of Jim Crow. And also in the lynching epidemic that plagued Mississippi and the entire South in the 1890s. So when that flag went up in 1894 with the Confederate battle flag in its top left corner, that was what they were honoring. And I believe that my colleagues would agree on that. Dr. Stephanie Rolfe is an associate professor of history and director of community engaged learning at Millsaps College. Dr. Rolfe, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Karen. The Supreme Court set September 28th as the deadline for the filing. Coming up, how much will it cost to fill the gas tank now that the hurricane has slowed production? Find out after a health minute. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. Dr. Rick here with my sidekick, Dr. Lessa Weatherly, and we're talking about sweating. Man, everybody's sweating is so hot. Some people have a big problem with sweating. Is that a disease? It is not a disease. There's actually a name for it. It's called hyperhidrosis. All right. Well, I know it can be very embarrassing, especially when you're working out or in a conversation. What do you do for that? Well, it just depends. So if you're sweating to the point where you're soaking through your clothes, particularly under your arms, one thing that's important is to make sure that the deodorant, which is what we call it, that you're using is both a deodorant and an antiperspirant. So you can get a deodorant that doesn't stop you from perspiring. You can. It just has something that would cover up, that would mask an odor and not necessarily work on sweat. How do you tell that? It's written exactly on the bottle, so you just make sure when you buy your stick or your can or your spray that it says that it is both an antiperspirant and deodorant. Okay, so you get an antiperspirant. It doesn't work. What do you do next? Great question. So if you're using an antiperspirant, there's two things you can do if it's not working well enough. You can get what we would call prescription strength and antiperspirant, and you can get those actually over the counter. They're found in the aisle at the drugstore, and they're actually found next to the normal deodorant. Really? Yeah, absolutely. What if that doesn't work? Well, if that doesn't work, then you probably need to see your physician and get a doctor's prescription to get a stronger antiperspirant from the pharmacy. I feel drier already. For more health tips and medical information, listen for Southern Remedy each weekday at 11, where the doctors are always in. For MPB Think Radio, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy on the go with the My Blue mobile app available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. More information at bcbsms.com. It's good to be blue. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippians won't see skyrocketing gas prices because of Tropical Storm Harvey. That's according to an an analyst. But it will cost more to fill the tank. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, 11 oil refineries along the Texas Gulf Coast are closed because of Hurricane Harvey. The weather event is now a tropical storm. But as of Tuesday afternoon, it had already dumped nearly 50 inches of rain on the Houston area. The rainfall has surpassed a previous record of 48 inches. Tom Closa is the global head of energy analysis with the Oil Price Information Service. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier how another storm could affect prices at the pump. Well, I think we'll have some more price spikes in gasoline, but I don't think under any circumstances other than, you know, a huge, enormous sinkhole opening up in Port Arthur or Baytown in Houston that we're going back to the really expensive days of $3 and higher. The fact of the matter is uh, we're in great shape for crude oil, and we're really in good shape with refining once these refineries get restored, and that shouldn't take too long. In terms of the impact of gas prices based upon the oil refineries, can you tell us the connection between that? Can you explain that for us? There's a glut of crude oil in the United States and North America, and that's not going to change. But there's never really a glut of gasoline during the driving season. And when you have something uh, that's perhaps not cataclysmic but significant like Hurricane Harvey, it can interrupt the normal production and flow of gasoline. And that's what we've seen over the last few days. 
Uh, and we've seen wholesale prices uh, in the Gulf Coast region go up by nearly 30 cents a gallon. So it's pretty easy for me to predict that retail prices are going to move higher. It might be difficult to pinpoint it, but I, I would say many parts of the Gulf Coast and the southeast and indeed uh, east of uh, the Mississi Mississippi will probably see increases of 15 to 25 cents uh, at the pump this week. Gas has been relatively low. How much is a barrel of oil prior to this storm? Price of a barrel of crude hasn't changed much. It's been stuck in a range generally between $45 and $52 this uh, this year, and it's trading for just over 46 at the moment. So it really hasn't been impacted by hurricanes. Hurricanes destroy demand. They don't destroy a real meaningful amount of crude oil supply. The problem is that gasoline uh, depends on how refineries are operating, and normally it might sell for 10 or $15 over the price of crude. Uh, now it's probably selling for 25 to $30 over the price of crude. And that's representative of the fact that maybe, oh, one out of five uh, barrels of gasoline production have been temporarily, and I emphasize temporarily, knocked out by uh, Harvey and the flooding. Do you happen to know how many refineries in the coast are shut down? Everything in Corpus Christi was shut down, and that was four refineries on the weekend. They are restarting those plants, which did not suffer any damage. Everything in the Houston area and perhaps extending to sort of Beaumont, a little bit in Port Arthur, maybe Texas City, you know, you're talking about a couple of million barrels a day of refining capacity. The good news is the U.S. has more than 18 million barrels a day of capacity. So, and it doesn't appear as though any lasting damage has been inflicted, but it's a question of when, when the storm move, moves out, when people can return to their posts at refineries, when the roads are passable, and uh, all the, lo the logistics of getting crude from this point to another point by water or by pipeline get restored. My hunch is that sometimes next week. So we're finishing the driving season, which to most people ends Labor Day week, with kind of a bang. In terms of when the storm hits, and when we see the prices start to rise, what is usually the amount of time it takes for that to crystallize? So far, retail prices have been kind of the dog that hasn't barked, even though it's been prompted to bark a bunch. And I think that's because of the tragic nature of uh, the storm. Ordinarily, you would have seen the increases if they were related to the price of crude or whatever. Uh, we are at the point now where most retailers and wholesalers have already received 20 or 30 cents in increases. So they need to raise their retail prices or else they'll go out of business. So you're going to see the increases at the pump uh, very swiftly. But let me put it in perspective for you. I think nationwide numbers are going to go above $2.50 as compared with about $2.34 before the storm. We haven't seen $2.50 since August 28, 2015. But on the Labor Day weekend from, let's say, 2011 through 2014, we regularly paid over three and a quarter for gasoline. So the cheap era of crude oil and gasoline will continue. This is kind of just an interlude of some uncomfortably high prices and, and some uh, mini price spikes uh, that'll uh, interrupt that for a bit. But uh, I certainly wouldn't worry and uh, go trade in the big uh, 4x4 for a, a non-gas guzzler based on this. In terms of Mississippi, is there anything specific to us that you can point out? 
Uh, well, Mississippi does have some refining down in Pascagoula, and uh, they have been uh, spared, so they're going to be able to produce gasoline as normally, and they were not interrupted. But most of your product comes via the Colonial Pipeline, which uh, uh, is sourced somewhere near Houston. And it may be a little touch and go with that, but you'll be fine. It'll just be more expensive for a matter of a few weeks. Uh, you know, I'm pretty confident that when we get to the fourth calendar quarter of this year, that you'll see prices trend uh, toward lower numbers. All right. Well, Mr. Closer, thank you so no, much for taking okay. the time to speak with us. Take care. According to AAA, on Monday, the state average price of a gallon of gas was $2.11. Yesterday, it was $2.13. The Auto Club expects prices to plateau in a couple of weeks and then begin to head downward. Coming up, several coast locations are accepting donations for hurricane victims. Find out how you can help. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Communities on the Gulf Coast are coming to the aid of people in Texas affected by Hurricane Harvey. Several locations are now accepting and organizing relief donations. The city of Gulfport has already filled an 18-wheeler with food, water, and cleaning supplies. Bay St. Louis and Pascagoula are also collecting donations. Billy Hughes is mayor of Gulfport. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby what the city is doing to help those affected by the hurricane. Initially, we're starting a drive to get the basic supplies to help the needs of the folks out in Texas who have been devastated by this storm. Watching this thing unfold over the last few days, it looks like the level of devastation that they're experiencing is going to eclipse what we saw in Katrina, which is mind-numbing. And having experienced it, uh, our hearts and prayers and thoughts are with those folks because they need all the help they can get. They're probably in a big state of shock right now. Still got a lot of water coming down on them. Um, but what we're seeing from the initial, just the, the initial measurements and assessments of things is that uh, they're going to need a lot of help for a long period of time. So we're trying to start some initial responses uh, and starting to fill up 18-wheelers uh, with local drives. And I'm going to tell you, I started talking about with these storms and what we found out with Katrina, you know, we saw the worst of Mother Nature, but we saw the best of humanity. And we are better for the the kindness of that folks around the country and around the globe when they came for days, months, and years to to help us out, and that's what Texas is going to need. So uh, this is not just a coastal response, although we have really uh, an opportunity here to pay it forward, uh, to share and, and respond in kind where there is need. Uh, anybody uh, within earshot of this interview, uh, if you've got the opportunity to get your church groups together or organize a drive, there are a lot of cities that need adoption. Uh, there are a lot of people that need help. Basic supplies at this point, everything from blankets to canned goods to you know water and uh, Gatorade to, to generators. These are the things that these folks are going to need because they're probably going to be without power for a while. They're going to be without supplies. There's going to come a point where they're going to need things from building supplies like Lowe's and Home Depot. So cards uh, would be of great help uh, to let folks go and get things as simple as flashlights and hammers and, and just uh, the basic, uh, again, essentials to, to rebuild their lives. Billy, what kind of support are you right now seeing from your community? 
we put the call out yesterday um, for an organization, and we, it's a group of group that has come together with uh, the, called Barbecue Relief. The folks around the nation that do barbecue contests, and they uh, they've got a chapter here, and they started a collection point that we've uh, partnered with them and the local radio station and, and folks to uh, get the word out as far as where people can deliver supplies. And as as they get filled up, uh, we're sending our trucks. Uh, John Fayard, Fast Freight, are the ones who are doing it down here, and they helped us when we responded to the Louisiana flood last year. Uh, we are uh, going to, as a city, adopt the town of Rockport, Texas, which uh, was pretty much at ground zero there, and they were devastated. Uh, they're a port city, not unlike Gulfport. And so I'm hoping that a lot of towns will do the same and uh, you know, basically be adoptive uh, sister cities to focus on an area that has a need. Will these donations be delivered directly to the city, or is there going to be some type of a staging area that's outside of the danger zone so that there's coordination there locally to get those donations to where they need to be? You know, they're emergency uh, response folks. They're, they're FEMA representatives. Uh, their law enforcement, their National Guard will be, um, you know, certainly directing folks as to where they need to go. We're going to let the folks at Rockport tell us where they want the stuff brought. But I can imagine that if they're anything like what we were dealing with, uh, they'll have those set up pretty doggone quickly as far as where they can coordinate. Because at that level, once you get it to Texas, they'll have volunteers and people that help distribute it and understand what needs to be done locally. Billy Hughes is the mayor of Gulfport. Mayor, thanks for being on Mississippi Edition. Thank you all for your concern. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Fix It 101. Then at 10, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, you can find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition. Only on MPB Think Radio.